was reading an article a while ago about the Secret Service agents that keep the president safe when he travels. I don't think I realized how much goes into uh, those, those, um, uh, those movements. I knew it was a lot, but um, don't think I realized how much. There's this article that talks about 13 ways the Secret Service keeps him safe. Uh, let me just name a few and comment on a couple. Uh, number one, the agents come early. It's probably pretty obvious. Uh, one that I found interesting, they, they warn problem folks that they'll be watched. Uh, in other words, they go to the category three people that have made threats, and, and they specifically tell them, we are watching you. Uh, they bring the dogs. Number six, thousands of people are involved. Um, but, but it's not just thousands of people. Jeffrey Robinson said that they, when the president flies, there are at least six planes that fly with the president. Some of these planes hold cargo, like helicopters and limousines and communication equipment, and others will hold hundreds of agents and staff members. Every time he moves, thousands of people are involved. Uh, number seven, they, they shut down highways. Uh, number nine, uh, agents do background checks on all the hotel workers. And so part of preparing the way for the president is uh, before the president arrives, the Secret Service agent uh, runs a background check on every single employee at every hotel that he stays. Uh, Ronald Kessler said anyone with any record of violence, even a minor charge like a fourth-degree assault, will be asked not to come into work on the day that the president does. They clear out the three floors of the hotel. They throw out, all electronic, uh, throw out the electronics. They set up the three, perim three perimeters around the place. Essentially, the Secret Service makes a way for the president. They prepare the way for the king. In, in ancient times, it was very similar, except there was no helicopters and limousines involved. But um, in ancient times, uh, they would prepare the way for the king when he would come down the road to a new city. Uh, they would literally, many times, repave the roads. It was an opportunity that when the king came in, they would pave a new road so that the way would be ready for him to come into the city. And the king would always be pre pre uh, preceded by his ambassadors, by messengers who would make the way for his arrival. That was the context that the New Testament was written in. And so when we turn to the New Testament, we come to the book of Mark and we read about one who prepares the way for the Lord. If you're reading that and you're a Jew and you're hearing the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Matthew and you read about one preparing the way, your mind is going to immediately go to the idea that there's a king coming and somebody else, one of his ambassadors, is preparing the road. Or maybe they're making the road straight so that when he comes in, uh, it'll be all ready for him. Uh, Miss Cindy has a... Um, a uh, phrase that she teaches our kids, you've all heard it, and if, if you go through Awana or go through our Sunday school program, if you graduate out of this church and, and you're 20, 30 years old, you're, you're going to know it as soon as you hear it, uh, and Cindy always asks the kids, whose way? Whose way? Whose way? Very good. John the Baptist uh, paved the way for Jesus and taught us what the way looks like. Um, in the book of Mark, Mark focuses on God's way. Uh, God's rule in our lives as we experience kingdom living under the authority of a king who is quite different from all the other rulers of the world, though. 
uh, it's interesting as you look at the different Gospels, you know, we're going through the story and we've been examining kind of how to understand the structure of the Bible. How do things fit together? How does all these Old Testament stories and the stories of individual lives, how do those fit into the overall upper story of what God is doing? When you come to the New Testament, one of the first things you'll notice is that there are actually four Gospels. There are four accounts of the, the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one might ask, well, why don't we just put it all into one book, right? Why, why wouldn't we just write one story about Jesus and, and you know, get it all chronologically correct and, and put everything in the right order? Um, why, why did they put four Gospels in there? And what's interesting is, as you read through each of these Gospels, you, you start to notice that each Gospel is, is sharing something new about you, about the, something new to you about Jesus from a different perspective. And so each gospel focuses on Jesus, focuses on his ministry, his death and resurrection, but it has a particular emphasis. For example, John, the Apostle John, when he wrote his gospel, he's focusing in on Jesus as God. He, he tells us about Jesus being a man. He tells us about Jesus being the king. But, but everything that he writes is, is from this perspective of focusing on the deity of Jesus. Uh, opposite of that, when you read the gospel of Luke, Luke teaches us that Jesus is God, but, but his particular focus and his perspective on the life of Jesus is that Jesus is a man. He focuses on Jesus as the Son of Man in his humanity. You turn to Matthew, which we started last week. Uh, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and so that's why you're going to see lots of Old Testament quotations throughout the book of Matthew. But Matthew is, is looking at Jesus particularly as the King. He's the coming Messiah. That's why that genealogy is so important at the beginning of of, of Matthew because he, he's showing how he, here's where the Messiah comes from this is the lineage of the king but as we turn to Mark uh, well Mark recognizes Jesus as God he certainly recognizes him as the son of man and as the king the Messiah Mark focuses on Jesus as the king who has come to set up the rule of God but this king is a servant king who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so whereas Matthew focuses on the kingship of Jesus, Mark particularly focuses on Jesus as a servant. So how does one prepare the way for a servant king? It's a little bit different, isn't it? You, you have a king who's coming to reign and to rule and to lead armies. Uh, there are roads that you pave so that he can come in with his troops and with his entourage but how do you pay how do you pave the way for a servant king who washes the feet of his servants how does one pave the road or serve as an ambassador to make ready for this king's arrival there are a couple prophecies that you might be familiar with in the in the in the old testament uh, in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, it's the last book of the Old Testament and one of the last books that was written chronologically during the days of Nehemiah. Nehemiah said, uh, excuse me, Malachi said this in chapter 3. He said, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messengers of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like, a, like fuller's soap. You see, interestingly, Malachi is going to speak of the judgment that Jesus is going to carry out and the justice that, that Jesus is going to one day bring into this world. 
Malachi speaks of preparing the way for the Lord, and he, he touches on the first coming, but he's also going to focus very greatly on, on the events of the second coming. One day Jesus will judge the world, but when he comes the first time, uh, we know that he came to comfort his people and to deal with their sins, to make payment for their sins. And so Ma- Mark quotes a passage, uh, he quotes Malachi, but then he blends that quote and, and attributes it specifically to the prophet Isaiah and a passage that particularly focuses on Jesus' first coming. Look at what he says in Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm going to look at the whole context. Uh, Mark quotes just a portion of this and paraphrases it in the first three verses of his gospel. But Isaiah said this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight the desert, in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And so Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah, but also alludes to Malachi and and demonstrates that that this one who is called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is someone significant. We need to get the roads ready. And that introduces us to the messenger. Who, Who was it that was the ambassador who prepared the way for the Lord. And, and the question is, is he literally going to pave a road? Do you, did he read anything in John, Mark, Matthew, Luke, where it talks about John the Baptist paving roads? No, no asphalt being put down, right? Or was he paving a different kind of road? Look at the text in verses 4 through 8. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of judea and all jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river jordan confessing their sins now john was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey and he preached saying after me comes he who is mightier than i the strap of whose sandals i am not worthy to stoop down and untie I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John comes. Uh, We see, according to Mark, he's a fulfillment uh, of the prophecies of Isaiah and Malachi. uh, And he's the messenger. This is the king's ambassador that comes before him, that paves the way for him. And we're told that he preaches a baptism of repentance. God's way is not going to be paved with a new road to the capital but God's way is going to be paved with a road of man's heart that are led to God himself. So what's baptism? We, we usually have some thoughts about what that is in, in, in our context, right? We, we have a baptismal in the back in the fellowship hall. We open the doors, we all go in there, and, and we have a baptism which people have been doing for 2,000 years within the church. Uh, but baptism existed before Jesus gave us these instructions, didn't it? It was a practice that was used by the Essenes and, and out in the desert and some of those communities there. And, and John comes along, and, and, and John has his own baptism. And essentially, baptism, what, what it means, the word means to immerse into something. Uh, it, it means to immerse into something else. When we talk about being baptized by the Holy Spirit, it means that he immerses us into the church body. 
uh, something's different but parallel to our water baptism that we celebrate a- as a body. But baptism for John, um, it, it was a sign of one's association with someone. All, all baptisms were that. They were, they were a sign of, uh, I am associating myself with this individual. I'm associating myself with this movement. And so when I'm baptized as a person uh, in, in, that believes in Jesus Christ, and we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I'm saying I associate myself with Jesus Christ. And when people came to John, they were, they were saying, look, I, I associate myself with the message that John is preaching. And what John was doing, what his baptism was doing, is it was demonstrating a readiness of different people to follow the way of the king that was coming. He didn't have to pave a way with asphalt, but when he baptized them, People's hearts were being made ready for the king that was coming. The ambassador was preparing them. Now, John is not implying in this passage that that water baptism removes their sin. Uh, Again, salvation comes in one way, right? It's through Jesus Christ. It happens the same way in the Old Testament as it does in the New Testament. Men are saved by grace through faith in God's provision to remove our sins. And that provision is baptism. That's not what he gave us to be saved. Is it going to church? Are are you saving yourself by being here today? No. The provision that God made for our sins was Jesus Christ himself. Salvation came the same way to those that John preached to, just as it had to those in the Old Testament, just as it does for us. The only difference is we look back at the cross and recognize what Jesus did, but in the Old Testament and with John, they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They were putting their faith in God who was going to prepare, the, who was, excuse me, was going to make provision for their sins. And so their repentance was a change of mind regarding their sin. It was a turning to God and turning to God's provision through faith and trusting that God was going to provide for their sins in some way. And what John was announcing was that the Messiah was coming and the people were repenting of their sins to prepare their hearts. And so John turns the, the country upside down, says everyone showed up, everyone came out. It's a hyperbole, not every single individual went out to the river, but, but the picture is, is clear. Masses are going out to the river to be baptized, to see what John is doing. They're flocking to hear, and their hearts are being prepared by the messenger. Uh, and it uses, the passage here uses what's called the imperfect verb. Uh, basically what that means is this is a repeated event. Uh, when it says that the people were going out, it, it didn't mean that they just went out and there was a one-week conference. John the Baptist was down at the river, and, and masses are going. And, and it wasn't just a one- or two-time event, but this was a movement and the movement was growing. And so dozens turned into hundreds, turned into thousands. And, and then Mark tells us what they were going out to hear. Mark, John's kind of an interesting individual, isn't he? First tells us that he's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. How, how would you feel if I came to church in camel's hair and a leather belt? Be a little bit different. Um, we think of that and we go, okay, well, John must have been kind of crazy. We call him Crazy John sometimes. It's, it's become popular this last couple of years. Um, but this is actually a, a normal attire for a prophet. Uh, we find in other descriptions of other prophets who wore camel's hair and, and a leather belt. A- and so what John is doing is he's coming out to them and he's preaching in the attire of a prophet. He's, it's reminiscent of Elijah who dressed that way and the prophets of Israel. 
We're also told that he ate locusts and honey, and, and that's not some weird variety of cereal. It's just a simple diet. He's out there in the wilderness, and he was eating bugs. Um, it was common. Uh, it wasn't something that was crazy abnormal. People still eat bugs in places like the, the desert. But um, it was a simple diet. So his appearance was, was noteworthy. Um, but it also notes what he preached about Jesus. And, and, and he specifically says that, that I am not worthy. This is one that comes as mightier than I. And, and the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So, so let's ask the question, who was it that would stoop down and untie the sandals of an individual? Yeah, the servants, good. It's particularly which servant? The lowest on the totem pole. If you go to somebody's house and they, they, they run a house with many slaves, with many servants, um, which was common in that culture, uh, you'd have lots of servants. Some of them would be physicians and doctors. Some of them would be the, the paterfamilias, the one who oversees the entire family. Um, and uh, a lot of those servants would sometimes even be richer than the master themselves, but they had different station in society. Those servants wouldn't be the ones that would be unstrapping your, your sandals, because when you unstrap the sandals, what's the next thing that comes after that? You've washed their feet. I, not, a, not a clean, easy job. Uh, it's a humbling job sometimes. People's feet were dirty. You know, they may have taken a bath, but then they walk 10 miles on those dusty roads. They're sweaty, and, and this person's getting down there, and they're unstrapping that sandal, and then they're washing their feet. And it was the, the lowest servant in a household, usually, that would do that. And so here's John, and John says, I, I, I'm not even worthy enough to be the servant that's the lowest on the totem pole with Jesus. He is that wonderful. He is that great. He is that mighty. But he also tells us that about Jesus, and he, and he says, you know, look, I, I baptized you with water. I, I'm immersing you into something which you are associating yourself with the repentance that prepares the way for the Messiah. But when he comes... Uh, He's going to baptize with the Spirit and with fire. He's speaking of judgment to come, but he also speaks that, that Jesus' ministry is going to be associated, and his followers are going to be associated with the Holy Spirit. And so something different happens when Jesus comes, and John is preparing the way for that. And so John comes to prepare the way. John was the ambassador that comes before the king. His messenger, uh, he was the messenger who went ahead to make things ready, but we see from the very beginning, even before Jesus shows up on the scene, that, that this is a different kingdom. No one, it's not one where, where roads were paved to the city and to the palace, but one in which people's hearts are paved with repentance, and the road leads to the throne of God where people find grace, where people find mercy, and where people find salvation because the king himself would come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, we've met the messenger, and as we move on, we see that there's the announcing of the king. Look at verses 9 through 11. Mark goes on in his introduction to the gospel. And he says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Not what you would expect. Jesus is baptized as a baptism of repentance, a baptism that's preparing the way from the Lord, and yet Jesus goes and he's baptized by John. 
when he came up out of the water, it tells us in verse 10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so, you know, as we think about baptism, we have this picture of what we associate with it, but, but why would Jesus be baptized? The question has been asked many times. It was a baptism of repentance at that. It's not that Jesus had sinned, right? Had he sinned? Did he need to repent before he could be the Messiah? No. He didn't need repentance. But what Jesus was doing is he was making it clear to everyone there that he was associating his ministry with John the Baptist, with the message that John had preached, that people need to repent in order to, to be prepared for the king himself. And Jesus was also associating himself with the sinners who he had come to give his life for. He became one of us. And so we learn in the Gospels that God takes on flesh. He became fully human while remaining, being continually, continuing to be fully God. He took on flesh and would one day become sin on our behalf. he would do so so that we might have his righteousness interestingly that the epistles talk about how jesus became our sin when he was on the cross and god looked down on him in those moments what god saw there was all the sin that we'd committed and his wrath was poured out on his son jesus became our sin and this incredible substitution takes place when a person places their faith in jesus christ there's a trade that takes place our account and all the bankruptcy and all the sin and everything that's filthy and horrible that we have done in this life is transferred to the son who died on the cross and his account which is filled with the riches of heaven and the glory of his righteousness is transferred to our account that's the substitution that takes place. And so Jesus, when he comes to be baptized, he's not only saying, I associate myself with John's ministry and the message that he preaches, but he's also saying, I associate myself with the sinners that I am coming to save, so much so that I will one day become their sin. The most important thing about Jesus' baptism was the authentication that followed the act. Did you notice what happens after he, he comes out of the water? glorious uh, it, mark tells us that the heavens were torn open in, in other words god reveals an incredible truth here I, I would have loved to have been there that day just to see what that was like uh, something happened this was an event that people took notice of god revealed his truth the heavens were opened to express a reality that needed to be understood by the people that were there and as jesus begins his ministry it, it didn't begin quietly on that day there was an announcement that was made jesus ministry we're told would be led by the holy spirit and, and that's noted as as the holy spirit descended on him you see jesus not only showed us the way to live under the rule of god but he's going to show us what it means to be filled with the holy spirit jesus is going to show us what it means to live a life and to do ministry under the control of the holy spirit and the holy spirit authenticated jesus's ministry we're going to see in a few moments that that immediately from going from there it's the holy spirit who is going to be leading him in those next moments and in the rest of his ministry over those years 
But we're also told that the Father also authenticated Jesus' ministry. There, there's this a divine announcement. And, and not only is it an attention getter, right? It's not only something that you go, you know, this was incredible. I'm down by the river and this guy comes along and I went to see John the Baptist and somebody else comes in and then the heavens are open. Can you imagine the, the stories that people, you know, we don't know exactly how all that took place and, and how many people saw it. But there was an announcement that noted that what Jesus' ministry was going to be. But it was bigger than just a general announcement. Uh, God the Father actually uses two different passages from the Old Testament when he speaks of Jesus here. A- and, and what he's saying there is also noteworthy. First he says, you are my beloved son. Have, have we heard that phrase somewhere before? Is that familiar territory? It's been a while, but we've been in Hebrews before we did the story. And we had a whole passage that was a quote from this very same psalm that God the Father is quoting at Jesus' baptism. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, um, there's an announcement of this son that is going to come. Hebrews notes, notes it, and, and we, that passage discusses greatly what's going on in Psalm chapter 2 and how that relates to Jesus. But let me read Psalm 2, 7 and 9 for you. And that passage says, I will tell of the decree. In other words, there's, there was a decree that was made sometime in eternity past. Where the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And essentially what's happening here is God the Father is, is making a decree of, of Jesus' relationship with him. A, a decree that was made at some point before time even began. But more than that, this decree is a decree of Jesus' eternality. What God the Father is saying is, as Jesus comes out of the water is he did not just become the Son. Not at any point in his life or his ministry on, on, on earth, but he was always the Son. This is a decree of Jesus' eternal nature. He's not just a man that was born on earth. He's not just a man who somehow was good enough that he became the Messiah. He's not a special creation that was made like the angels. But he existed for all of eternity before anything else was created. Jesus has always been the Son. And so pointing to Psalm chapter 2 is noteworthy in what the Father says because it's pointing to the fact that Jesus is eternal. But then he also quotes from Isaiah 42 and says, with you, I am well pleased. And again, he's pointing to much more than just one phrase that's yanked out of a passage in the Old Testament. He's pointing to something else that that, that passage is, is uh, dealing with as a whole. Look, listen to what Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 42 says, verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Oh, that, that kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Did something just happen in Mark that had to do with the Holy Spirit? The, the spirit actually literally descended on him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. 
and the coastlands wait for his law. And so, by quoting Isaiah 42, God the Father is making a statement that he approves all that Jesus has done up to this point, not only in eternity, but also in his life on earth. That he approves of everything that Jesus had come for. But it's also an allusion to Jesus' purpose. He's not just saying, I, I'm pleased with my son. Good job. This guy's, you know, pay attention to this guy. I'm going to open up the heavens and I'm going to send my spirit to, to descend on him. And you should note that this person is important. This is a person you should follow. But bigger than that, he's saying this person is eternal. And this person that is before you today that is beginning his ministry has come with a purpose that I approve. He has come to establish justice for the nations. And that's going to begin with his ministry on earth, followed by his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead and his return one day when he will, when he will rule the nations, literally, physically, on earth. Mark chapter 1 is one of the few passages in Scripture where we find all three persons of the Trinity working together. Uh, we see that throughout the Scripture. Uh, but here in this passage specifically, all three persons are referred to. And their ministry that we see here is one that's unified, one that's together. Verses 12 through 20 continue on, though. And they tell us a little bit about the king's way. We've seen the messenger that announced the way. We saw the announcement of the king. But, but let's look at the king's way itself. In verse 12 and 13, we're told that the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the, the angels were ministering to him. Mark's account of the temptation of Christ is a lot briefer than, than Matthew. Uh, Matthew deals a lot with that in chapter 4. Uh, Mark doesn't put the emphasis on the temptation in the same way that Matthew does and that Luke will. But, but notice that this is of incredible importance still in the Gospel of Mark. While he doesn't focus on the details of what happens during that temptation and how Jesus overcame Satan's temptations, what he does know is that it's the Spirit that took him out there. And that's where Mark is going with this. It's the Holy Spirit who immediately is leading Jesus' ministry. Everything that Jesus does is in submission to the Holy Spirit, which is wonderful for us because what does that do? It sets us an incredible pattern of how our ministry should take place. That everything that I do in my life and my ministry should be under the control and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit who God has given, given to us. The first event to take place after the announcement of Jesus' ministry is his temptation in the desert. It's this period of 40 days and 40 nights in which Jesus fasted and he was tempted by the devil, by Satan, the adversary. But the way of this king, as Mark emphasizes it, it would be that he would be operating under the leadership of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Whereas the kingdoms of the earth, they normally operate under the rule of Satan. Do we see that? Do we see that in our own lives? You look at the kingdoms of this world and sometimes you just wonder what in the world is happening here. Uh, the Bible shows us that, that there is an element of control in which Satan and his minions have control over the kingdoms of this earth. They have an incredible influence that they exert. The kingdoms of this earth normally operate under the rule of Satan, but God's kingdom is one that is led by one who was tempted by the adversary, and he is doing so under the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
Understand that the rule of God on earth bears a distinct difference from the rules of the other kingdom. And our king, Jesus Christ, operates under a different set of rules than all the other kingdoms of this earth. He goes on in verses 14 and 15 and says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I believe that Jesus was truly offering the kingdom. It was a real offer, and if the, the leaders would have accepted it, I, I think that, that it would have come about. Uh, Jesus, in his foreknowledge and his omniscience, knew what was going to take place. Um, and, and though the kingdom is something that will be fulfilled one day uh, when Jesus returns, there's an element in which Jesus has already initiated his kingdom. And it's taking place in the hearts of of men. We will see a literal fulfillment of the promises to David and to Abraham. And and those elements will be fulfilled. But that kingdom has already been initiated. Jesus has completed his work. And that kingdom has begun in our lives. And has spread throughout the world in a way that we just don't expect kingdoms to take place. And it certainly was something that the disciples didn't expect, was it? They were looking for a, a king that would come and conquer Rome happened a little bit different than they expected this world and god's enemy the devil it it offers us a very tempting way of living life for ourselves this world and the devil who seeks to tempt us offers us a way that we live life for our own glory and our own pleasure but we've been called to be followers of jesus christ who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a key verse in Mark. The way of our king, the way that was paved ahead of him and that he showed to us, is a way in which we turn from our sins and we believe the good news about Jesus Christ who ransoms us from our sins. And Jesus is the one that we follow. I, I find it significant in Mark, that after offering us the summary of the message of Jesus, he gives us the brief account of Jesus calling to his first followers. I'm just going to read the passage. We're not going to go into great detail here today. But in verses 16 through 20, immediately after these things, after the announcement of his kingdom and, and the message of his kingdom and his temptation, it says that passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is a story that we can all relate to, right? Of, uh, you know, here are some men just minding their own business. And Jesus comes along and he changes their life. He calls them to something entirely new. But isn't that what he's done for you? You're going along life, minding your own business, doing things according to your plan. And then he comes along and he changes everything. He says, follow me. And if you have come to a point in which you have responded in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has transformed your heart and he has led you in a way that you are following him and, and has transformed everything. But oh, what a life that these men would live right which they would follow their king and they would walk in his way to be on the side that overcomes you must operate by his rule according to his way 
This begins with repentance, as your heart is turned away from your sin. Repentance, we're told, is a change of mind about your relationship with sin. It's a a change of mind about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when you come to him in repentance, you're saying, my relationship with my sin before is not going to be the relationship that I want anymore. And I am changing my mind about who Jesus Christ is in my life. I may have understood the facts in, in my mind all this time, but repentance, true repentance, is changing my mind about the sin that has overtaken my life and consumed me. I'm changing my mind about who Jesus Christ is from here, this point forward in my life. And so thus the way is paved to his throne through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for your sin. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we continue to follow his way, knowing that this kingdom is different. His followers are here to advance the kingdom, and we do so by following his example. And just like our king who came to serve, we also serve. We're not here to be served. And we preach the message of repentance and of grace that we find right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus established at the very beginning what his way looked like. This is what everything that we've examined in the story has pointed us to. Through Jesus, God is reconciling sinners to himself. He is restoring the relationship that was broken all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In the very beginning of this series, in the very beginning of the Bible, we've seen that, that, that God is about restoring relationship. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, as soon as they fell, God made a way. God said, I, I'm going to send someone. Uh, the seed of a woman, and he will crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to provide a way that's going to deal with the sin that you have brought into this world, Adam. And all through the Old Testament, we see God's promise. And and as people are looking forward to, and, and they're responding in faith to the one that was going to come. God is in a business of reconciling sinners to himself. But just as as this is central to all of the Bible, the question of which the question of which which way you will follow is also the central question that you must answer in this life there are some who believe that they are saved and have a golden ticket because their parents went to church their parents were christians so they must be in right there are some who believe that they are they are members of the kingdom of god because they were baptized Maybe as an infant, maybe as an adult, but that got them in, they believe. There are many who would say that they have done more good than they've done bad in their life, and so they hope that that will get them into God's kingdom. It's very popular today to emphasize only some of God's attributes. We live in a culture that likes some things about God and they don't like other things about God. And and so they take the things that we culturally value, like love, or at least what we think love looks like. We don't like the idea that God is also just, a just God that pours out his wrath on sin. And so the popular response of many is that God is a loving God, but surely he wouldn't send me to hell. And so they assume that they're going to be saved because of a one-sided, half-baked view of who Jesus is. 
My friends, all these different views of Jesus and the salvation that he offers are wrong. Allow me to ask you this morning, and I ask you to answer this question in the quietness of your own heart. Have you responded to God's invitation, to God's way? If you died today, if you walked out these doors and you fell dead, you would stand before God, and what would you say? If he said, why should I allow you into my kingdom, what would be your response to it? How would you answer him? My friends, I would ask you to consider the answer that you just gave in the quietness of your own heart. Because the duration of your eternity, the location of your eternity, depends on that answer. The duration of your eternity rides on what you believe about that question. If your response to him is, I go to church often, or I even beat daylight savings time and made it to church. If your response is, I, I was baptized, then your response to his invitation is the same thing as saying, thank you, but I regretfully decline because you have not responded to his way. If your response would be that you are a pretty good person, then you will be turned away from eternity with him and spend an eternity separated from him in judgment. If you believe that you were born into the kingdom, earned your way in, or did something good that somehow has gained favor for yourself in his sight, then you need to understand what the Bible says and what Mark says and what Jesus has said, that, that what you believe will result in you being turned away forever. But Jesus' message for you today is the same one that he preached to that audience in Galilee several centuries ago. Repent and believe in the gospel. If God were to ask you why you should be allowed into the kingdom and your response is that you have believed in Jesus who died for your sins, then you've understood the way. And if that is the belief of your heart, eternity is yours you're here today and that's a new concept to you or you haven't made that declaration of faith I would encourage you to talk to one of us I think Jared is going to be in the back in the room to the left as you go out the uh, towards the fellowship hall if you'd like to just pray with someone Jared would love to sit down and pray with you if you'd like to know more about following Jesus what it means to believe if some of this is speaking to your heart, but you still have questions, Jerry would love to talk to you there, or I would as well. Um, don't leave here today without knowing that eternity is yours. This morning I'd like to close in prayer. And I close with a prayer that was written in Ephesians for us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Let's pray together. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you this, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength 
to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen.